I bring you greetings from our congregation, Christian Cultural Center in New York, our several campuses. We have an amazing uh, family and community of faith there. And it is about community. Churches that know how to build community will be churches that are successful in the 21st century because God designed us for community. We don't grow in isolation. We only grow in community. It's in the context of the local church, the community of faith, that we're socializing the faith, that we learn the values, the traditions, the practices, the thinking, the language that constitutes us as the people of God. I love your pastor. And that means that I always think in terms of his good. And that is one of the characteristics of loving someone. It means that you always have their best interests at heart. And you're unashamed of expressing that love. I love him, love Holly, their family, and the work that they continue to do here in L.A. And they teach me about L.A. How many know you have to learn about L.A.? It's like you have to learn about New York, right? And all ministry is contextual. It depends on the context that you're in that determines how you reach the people that are in that context. So I bring you greetings from our congregation. I bring you greetings from my lovely wife. On October 1st of this year, we celebrated 46 years of marriage. Thank you for celebrating marriage and longevity. We got married when we were eight years old. It, it was arranged. I'm just kidding. But also greetings from my seven sons. And people ask me, why do you have seven sons? Because we wanted a daughter. <laughs> That's what happens when you want a daughter and you keep going. My wife would have kept going. I said, mm-mm, mm-mm. Seven sons and 24 grandchildren. 24 grandchildren. See, I talk about that longevity and that large of a family. The cane comes into the picture, right? That should be an old guy. But I've been blessed with 12 granddaughters and 12 grandsons. So that's cool. Split right down the middle. And um, they don't call me grandpa. I will hurt them. <laughs> I am Papa. And that is a term of endearment especially from the country and culture that I came from, which is Panama. My mother and I came to this country years ago to start a new life together. She ran for the Olympics in Panama, Venezuela, Jamaica. And my father, who I never met, never got to know, didn't want anything to do with my mother and I, abandoned us very early in life, and that put her into a state of depression because she had a full scholarship to come to the United States and study at the University of Tuskegee and run with the Tuskegee track team. If you know anything about track, you'll understand the reputation of that track team. 
When she got pregnant with me, she decided to keep me. And she lost that scholarship, was removed from the Olympic team, and it put her, especially after my father rejected us, put her into a state of depression. So we came to the United States to make a new start. And I share that story with you because don't ever think your life is an accident. God providentially sustains and guides human history. And you and I are part of that human history. And how we come into the world is part of a design that he has for us. So we should never, never be embarrassed or ashamed about that. Amen? How many know you're not an accident? Uh, and that's why life, human life, is sacred. Because as Jeremiah the prophet in chapter 1, verse 6, it expresses, God expresses, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you and called you. So each life from the moment of conception on is sacred because it emanates from the love, the mind, the will, and purposes of God. This is important because it was one of the things that helped me become a Christian. I'm writing four books right now. Pray for me that I finish at least one of them. And one of them is entitled, Why I Am Christian. I spoke a little bit from that book in the first service. I will touch on it, but I want to speak from another book called The Four Pillars of a Blessed Life. But I had to go through a journey because I grew up in urban America in New York City in the 60s, which was very volatile in our communities. I was part of an educational desegregation program, which sensitized me to social issues that were going on in that decade. And that was a decade of many revolutions, spiritual, social, the Jesus Revolution, music revolution, civil rights. There was a lot that was going on at that particular time. And somehow, God's hand was upon me even as a young person in those days. Because I was curious about God, about origin, purpose, destiny, the meaning of life. And I would read a lot to try to gain those answers, at the same time experiencing the social pressures which were my reality in the context that I grew up in. But somehow I intuitively knew that God, truth, and reality were synonymous. And if I found one, I would find the other two. And that gave me a framework with which to judge the many religions that I looked through, especially Eastern religion, Eastern thought, 
also Christianity, which I read the Bible, but it was as a piece of literature, not as the living word from God. So it was the social times that led a lot of my decision-making. In high school, we organized schools around the city in protests to bring African-American studies into the high schools. We organized in protests of some of the things that were going on in terms of war and the military-industrial complex. And you say, but you were a kid. Yeah, I was a strange kid. <laughs> but sensitive to all of these things and these realities. And finally, I made a decision to become part of a very radical organization, especially at that time, called the Nation of Islam, also known as the Black Muslim Movement. I was there before Louis Farrakhan was in the position of influence that he has been in. At that time, a man named Elijah Muhammad, who founded it, was there. And I was looking for answers. And what drew me to that organization was order, strength, power, discipline, a response to social realities. But I didn't find God. And I never bought in to the hatred, the racism that was present even there. It's funny how you can cry out against racism and be racist. So, because I was still open, God allowed me to experience certain things along the way where he extended his grace to me. And eventually, in 1975, January 11th, brought me to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I was a banker by trade, so in 1974, I got the secretary I didn't want. She was a little Pentecostal woman named Daisy Lopez. And in her practice of church, you, everything was sin. So she wore a little bun, hairstyle, very plain, and she would give me these tracks called chick tracks. Some of you have no idea what that is. But they're little gospel tracks, and I would ask her questions, and she would go to her pastor, and finally he told her to stop talking to me because I would confuse her. But what, I, what intrigued me was her simple, childlike faith in this Jesus. I would say, more than intrigued me, it tormented me. So finally, she invited my wife and I to attend a meeting where a guy named Nicky Cruz was sharing his conversion story to Christianity. And I went, and that night, something deep and profound happened in my heart. His message was good, 
but it was broken English, so it was difficult to understand. Something about Janis Joplin and drugs. But I came face to face with what I can now articulate as the presence and power of God. He made an altar call. I've got the language now. I had no idea what it was. He said, if you want to receive Jesus, come on up here. And I felt vulnerable and open. And I walked up to the stage. And he said, can I pray for you? It didn't matter. Because I was open. He could have said Mickey Mouse. (laughs) It wouldn't have registered the same. It would have been filtered by what I was experiencing. And he laid hands on me and he prayed for me. I felt like someone put a blowtorch to my chest. And I started weeping uncontrollably, which is something that I did not do. After that experience, I was leaving and my secretary and her husband were in the back of the church. They came down and said, did you get it? Did you get it? I had no idea what I was supposed to get. So I said, I don't know, but something happened to me up there. As I reflected, there are two things that came intuitively in my heart very powerfully. First, I am the God that you're looking for. And I knew intuitively, intuitively, it was Jesus. I knew it in such a way no one could talk me out of it. I knew that I knew that I knew that I knew that he was the eternal God. And that was huge for me because I embraced him as a prophet in a long line of prophets, but not as the incarnation of God. The second thing, these words, I and my word are one. And that was important to me personally because all I had known about Jesus is what I saw in movies and pictures. And they were so different. And it presented a problem for me because most of what I saw was a dark-haired, blue-eyed Jesus which made him the religion of the oppressor, how I was oriented. How could he now be my savior? But those words, I and my word are one, stripped my mind of all of the pictures and paintings and movies. And all of a sudden, Jesus and the scripture became one and the same. And now I could relate to this Jesus by relating to the Word. And this is before I came across the text in John where it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Before I even touched that text, knew that text, this was a deep and profound reality. Christianity had the best answers for me out of all of the religions that I looked through. 
In every other religion, man pursues God. But in Christianity, God pursues man. There's a difference between emancipation and redemption. In American history, 1963, 64, leading up to 65 in preparation for a major war that was happening in this nation called the Civil War. But it led to something called the Emancipation Proclamation. It was a document that freed African-Americans who were slaves and made slavery in this nation illegal. Emancipation. But it left them on their own to try to assimilate and build themselves up into American society without being given the tools, the access, the opportunity. That's what emancipation does. It frees you and then leaves you. But Christianity it's not about emancipation. It's about redemption. Redemption is different in that redemption frees you, but then restores you. So all that slavery can strip away from you and leave you in a state of deprivation Christianity says, no, I'm not going to just free you from slavery to sin. I'm going to empower you. I'm going to restore you and bring you back to the original intent in the mind of God so that you can walk with dignity, with respect, with value. And that's the kind of religion I wanted. That's the kind of Jesus I wanted. Christianity, amen. So Christianity helped me to discover the truth about God, the truth about what it is to be human, and the truth about what it is to live in this world. That's a powerful thing, and it had a powerful impact on me as a person. And then within three months, my wife Karen, because she saw the change that took place, she gave her life to Jesus. So Christianity is the last stop for me on the train. I'm not looking for another religion. I'm not looking for another God, another prophet. This is it. I've arrived. I'm looking to learn and to grow in this. I don't understand it all. I'm embracing it. I'm in, uh, especially trying to figure out the institution called the church. 
Remove people from the church. The church is amazing with no problems. <laughs> the moment you bring people in, everything changes. But ministry is people. Without people, there's no ministry. So Christianity brought those answers to me. And what it taught me was the dignity of the human person. That we are all made in the image and likeness of God. And that's what gives us our value, our worth, and our dignity. Not the color of your skin, your race, your ethnicity, your economic power, your political persuasion, not, not class, nothing else. But that stamp, that indelible stamp by God of his image on the human person. And that's why Jesus said when they were challenging about paying taxes, he said in response to their question about it, he asked, whose images are in that coin? And they said, Caesar. He said, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God. So the context was about an image being stamped. And what Jesus was saying is even in a fallen human condition, that image still is stamped on every human being. I appreciate the 20 people who agreed with me. <laughs> but how important is that, especially in our nation today, where division runs deep? Ideological divisions, political divisions, racial divisions, social and cultural divisions. I was on a radio program called The Breakfast Club. They don't serve breakfast, by the way. <laughs> And I was having a conversation with a man, interesting name, Charlemagne the God. It was my second time on the program. And he asked me questions about this deep racial divide and the things that are happening in our nation. And he, said, what's, he asked me, what's the answer? And I said to him, the imago Dei, which is Latin for the image of God. He heard it. But he didn't understand it. But Christianity unpacks it. And that's still the answer today. That we are made in the image of God. And that's what gives us human dignity, human person, purpose, human meaning, and human value. That's why. One of the reasons why I am a Christian. The other reason, and I have about 150, <laughs> if you've got time. And by the way, I'm not going to finish. I'm letting you know now. And it's not my fault, not the pastor's fault. It's the clock. The clock is in control of our lives. How many discovered that? How many had to turn it back today? You didn't have a choice, did you? No. But I want to share something with you 
because not only did he create man in his image and in his likeness, but then he said, let them have dominion. Be fruitful, multiply, be productive. Do something with your life. Essentially is what he was saying and commissioning. And what he was talking about was not domination. And there's a difference between dominion and domination. Dominion identifies the gift, talents, and abilities under their leadership and brings out the best in individuals. Where domination is selfishly driven and only seeks to exploit the gift, talents, and abilities in others. We were called a dominion, not domination. And that dominion and call to dominion is a stewardship responsibility. We are stewards of everything and possessors of nothing. And if you think you possess it, attend a funeral. There is no U-Haul behind any hearse because you can't take it with you. We are stewards of everything. And we will be judged, not for sin, because that's been dealt with through Christ, but we will be judged for our stewardship. What did you do with the time, talent, treasury, relationships, gifts, talents, and abilities that God has given to you? What did you do with it? And there will be consequence, the scripture says. I don't mean to scare you. Some of you will be so happy to get to heaven, you won't care. We have many stewardship responsibilities, but there are four primary responsibilities. Stewardship over our time, our talent, our treasury, and our relationships. It can be easier to manage your time, your talent, and your money than it is to manage your relationships. Can I get an amen from somebody? Come on, isn't it true? If you found a secret beyond that, see me after service. Because there are times when Time is in order, money is in order, talent and ability is in order, but the most challenging is relationships. And yet, relationships is the network for life. We live life on levels. We arrive in stages. And each stage takes us to a new level of knowledge, understanding, Wisdom, authority, responsibility, and relationships. Because it's only by the way of some relationship that you move to the next level in life. It is only by way of relationship that you leave one season of life and enter another season of life. And we have not been good 
as we need to be when it comes to managing our relationships. How about one amen to encourage me? Unless you all got it right, got it together out here. In New York, we're still working on it. But it's true. It is so true. It's the most difficult. It's the most challenging. Jesus said in Matthew, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give rest to your soul. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. He said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How powerful is that statement, especially when you associate it with relationships? Because his use of the word yoke simply states that relationships are the yokes that bind us in life. So he used the term yoke to symbolize relationship and labor. Because he was talking about two oxen being together in a yoke. And the idea is that they're pulling something heavy, a burden. And the yoke is best and easy when the two who are joined in it are joined in an equal fashion, each pulling the weight that they're supposed to pull. Because if one person is weak and deficient, then it puts a lot of heavy burden in pulling in that relationship on the other person. So the principle here is whatever or whoever you're yoked to in life, you carry the burden of. I'm going to try that one more time. This is why the scripture says, be not unequally yoked. Because it's going to create a hardness, a difficulty, and a burden. When there is not balance in the relationship. And that's why it's important that we enter relationships thoughtfully and prayerfully. Because that relationship becomes a yoke that binds us together. And it determines the hardness or easiness in which we carry the burden. I never forget in the, in the, in, in, in the 60s and 70s even, where in the 70s, a crack epidemic, in the 60s, heroin, but it was drugs. And some of my early ministry was working with those who were drug addicted. And it would amaze me when I would talk to an individual and they would look like they were in their 60s only to discover that they were 25 years old. The yoke to the drug habit created a burden so heavy that it began to change not only their mental disposition, but their physical. And then 
I saw individuals that Jesus saved and pulled out of it. And I saw the transformation back to their youth. And they would be amazed at photos of when they were in a drug addiction situation. Whatever you are yoked to in life, you carry the burden of. Whoever you are yoked to in life, you carry the burden of. Now, I told you I wouldn't finish. I get the music and the signals. <laughs> the heart seeks truth and love. It was designed that way. And there are six essentials for successful relationships. These are foundational. They are indispensable. If your relationships are going to be successful, I don't care if it's in love, if it's in family, if it's in business, if it's in ministry. There are six. I don't have the time to give them to you. But either my book will be out or I will be back to continue this wonderful conversation with an incredible conversation, congregation. Thank you so much for indulging me and being with me today. God bless you.